0: Uh, it's good to see all of you. Uh, if we haven't had the chance to meet, my name is Davis Morgan. I'm the RUF campus minister at Southern Miss, uh, just like Chad said. Um, and uh, It's been a blessing to be with you several times this fall semester and over the summer. And am um, looking forward to opening God's Word together in Ephesians chapter 6. Let's turn there together, Ephesians chapter 6, beginning with the 10th verse. And we'll finish out the chapter. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. It's printed for you in the bulletin there. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. For which I am an ambassador in chains. That I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose. That you may know how we are. And that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers. And love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Amen. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the Word of our God stands forever. Let's pray together and ask God to teach us His Word. Our God and Father, this is Your Holy Word given By Your power, it's without error in any part, and we are in need of the transforming power of the implanted Word that is able to save us. So we pray that You would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to understand. Would You soften our hearts to receive the good news? We pray it in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. One of the blessings and privileges I had in my years uh, of seminary was the gift to get to hear Dr. Jim Baird preach as a guest speaker at our chapel service at RTS. Some of you may know the name of Dr. Baird, uh, who pastored First Presbyterian Church of Jackson for many years and um, was has spoken around and preached for many years after that, passed away um, just in the last few years. But Dr. Baird preached and told a story uh, that I think sets our passage up very well of a backwoods mountain Appalachian community in South Virginia in 1942-43 where a family of mountain dwellers made their way down to the local general store as they did every few months, and this would have been early in 1942 in the, in the March or April season, making their way down the mountains for the first time in several months to get their supplies and head back up to their home. And being astonished at how hard it was to find flour and sugar and butter and how limited the supplies were on the shelves. And they went to the general store, to the manager at the counter and complained and said, Why is there no bacon here? Why is there no meat? Why is there no sugar? Where is everything? To which the manager said, Oh, you didn't know. We're at war. Everything's been rationed. You see, that's the exact situation that the Apostle Paul in our passage is trying to get us to not be in. The moment of realizing that you are at war and don't know it just like those people who did not know that the United States was engaged in war against the empire of Japan and against Nazi Germany and fascist Italy in 1942. We can easily find ourselves in the Christian life, and up to this point we might find ourselves in the book of Ephesians not knowing that we have an enemy, not knowing that we are engaged in hostility. And so that's what this passage is about is the fact that you are engaged in a war, whether you know it or not. And so there's three things that we need to do to fight this battle in this passage. We need to know our enemy. You need to know your enemy. You need to stand your ground, and you need to grab your gear. Know your enemy, stand your ground, and grab your gear first starting in verse 10. We need to know our enemy, right? The the thrust of this first section is that we stand against the schemes of the devil. That we're, we, Paul wants us to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might so that we can stand against the schemes of the devil. And if that concept makes you sort of uh, poke your eyebrow up or roll your eyes or think, oh no, here we go, it's the exorcist all over again. If that raises sort of a cartoonish vision in your head, it's not surprising. It's not surprising at all because our modernized Western culture has all but done away with the concept of a personal devil. We've all but done away with the idea of a force of evil. You see, well, if you saw the, if you saw the Wonder, Wonder Woman movie about five years ago, you, you were, you've seen this personified that the, the, the main villain of that movie is the Greek god Ares, the god of war, who is at work in the world uh, uh, toiling to make wars happen. And it's, it's telling, on the one hand, that that concept of a personal evil force at work in the world is something that we have effectively relegated to the domain of comic book superheroes, and Hollywood blockbusters. On the other hand, it's actually, it's actually uh, informative for us, it's instructive for us, because actually if you watch that movie, it's not a bad demonstration of maybe what we might see the devil doing at work in the world, working to make wars happen, working behind the scenes through politics, through systems and structures, and on a personal basis to see evil havoc across the world. But, but there's two ditches that we tend to fall into whenever we talk about spiritual warfare or talk about the devil. right? And C.S. Lewis uh, uh, perfectly articulates them in his preface to the screw Tape Letters. He says, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to have an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, the devils, are equally pleased with both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Did you hear that? The devils are pleased themselves with both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with with the same delight. See, these are the two things we slip into, aren't they? Either on the one hand, we have such a secular, materialistic view that we assume every natural problem has a natural cause, a natural solution, and so every evil we see in our own hearts and in the world we approach like an earthquake. Well, there are tectonic plates. There's there's an explanation for that. The the moon turned red this week. Well, there was a lunar eclipse. We have an explanation for that. Uh, my, my, my spouse is angry. Well, there's psychological explanations and brain chemistry explanations for that. We can make sense of it. We don't need the devil. We don't need a theology of evil existing as an enemy. We can make sense of this thing. We either do that or we fall into the other cartoonish, red pajama, Freddy Krueger version of the devil that really is something that belongs more to a cartoon show than to reality. But what, but what Paul is showing us here is there is actually an enemy, a devil. The accuser of the brethren is what the book of Revelation calls him. The accuser of the brethren who is at work, a malevolent force, a malevolent personality, who hates the fact that you are listening to the Word of God this morning, who hates that you are gathered for worship, who hates it when you forgive someone who hates it when you act unselfishly, who hates it when you pray, and who will do everything he can to get you to not do those things. Now, on the one hand, where Paul says, we struggle not against flesh and blood, don't hear what Paul's not saying. Paul's not saying that Christians aren't concerned with evils in the world. Paul's not saying that Christians don't Struggle in an earthly way. We absolutely do struggle against individual sins, institutional sins, systemic sins, and all other forms of evil in the world. Right? We're we're called to be salt and light in the world, engaged in these ways. But what Paul is saying is don't make the mistake of thinking that you can explain this through natural causes. Don't make the mistake of thinking that there is not a supernatural force at work in this. You see, it's a mistake, and and historically, scholars uh, have been brought back to this concept of there being evil at a cosmic level through some of the carnage of the 20th century, through the trenches of World War I, through the Holocaust, through nuclear war, through... Uh, the gulags of the Soviet Union. You see, you can't look at that and say, well, Stalin just had low self-esteem. You see, you can't look at that and just say, well, Pol Pot probably just needed a better education. Right? The evils that we have seen in the 20th century, and I realize it's the 21st century now, but we're still sort of living in the aftermath of these things, the evils of the 20th century have forced us to confront the idea that evil might be bigger than just what a human being is capable of. One writer says this in a book called The Death of Satan, how Americans have lost the sense of evil. A gulf, he says, has opened in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources for coping with it. A gulf has opened between the visibility of evil and their intellectual resources for coping with it. For coping with it. That's what Paul is saying here. Is No, you do have an enemy. You do have an enemy. And he wants you to know that enemy. I'm stealing this illustration from another pastor, but what if I were to tell you this morning that when you leave this building you're going to be followed? That there is someone following you who's waiting to attack you. Think how you might conduct yourself differently. Think how you might stick to public places, to well-lit areas. Think how you might look over your shoulder and be conscious of where you're walking and whether or not you're alone. You see, it changes things when you know your enemy. And that's what Paul wants you to do, is to know your enemy. To know that you have an adversary who prowls like a lion, seeking someone to devour. Know your enemy. Secondly, stand your ground. Stand your ground. Notice the prominence in verses 13 and 14 of the, the verb to stand. Right? We're, we're called uh, to, stand, to withstand the evil day, having done all to stand. And then verse 14, stand therefore. I think Paul wants us to stand somewhere. But before we ask what does it mean to stand, what does it mean to stand firm or to withstand, first we need to talk about where we stand. Let's talk about where this battle is fought. Notice that he says that we struggle against powers in the heavenly places. Now you might remember from chapter 1, the very opening passages, that Paul says that every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places has been given to us. Where does Paul position the Christian? He says that we have currently, in chapter 1, been raised up with Jesus and seated at the right hand of God. In other words, that is the place where you stand today if you are in Christ, if you are united to Jesus by faith. Romans 5, Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. See, that's the place you stand as a Christian. That's the place where you find your identity, is that you are in a place where you are justified. A place where God calls you righteous because of faith. The place in which you stand is a place of access to the Father through Jesus. The place in which you stand is a place of peace with God. The place in which you stand is a place of hope and boasting of future glory of God. And whatever else might be happening in verse 12, I think one thing is clear. Is that where Satan is going to attack you is going to be at the place where you stand. Satan's tactic is going to be, just like it has always been, to attack the place of your identity. He's going to try to attack your standing before God. We might say it this way, that Satan is sort of a judo wrestler. Now, you might take a look at me and not think that I know a lot about judo, and you'd be right. But I do know this that judo is a very simple principle of using your opponent's momentum against them. The entire principle of judo is designed for a weaker opponent to defeat a stronger opponent by manipulating their strength against them. Right? The, the principle, I looked this up on Wikipedia and found it, says softness controls hardness. In other words, the weaker Fighter has the ability to defeat the stronger by simply using their own strength against them. If you watch people judo wrestle at the Olympics, what they do is they try to manipulate one another's force so that they can flip each other over. And that's what Satan does. Is he, does he doesn't come at you and match force for force. He doesn't say, I'm going to uh, arm wrestle you and say, today, why don't you destroy your marriage and yell at your children and uh, alienate everyone around you and ignore injustice and not care about the needs of others and become wickedly selfish. He doesn't do that. What he does is he uses your momentum. He uses the things that you care about, the things that you're engaged in. He uses your good passions and manipulates them to make them ultimate things. He uses the good things we love to make them ultimate things so that we're off balance and then it's easy to flip us over. Okay, so it doesn't sound like today go destroy your marriage. It sounds like your work is so important it has to be done well. Right? It doesn't sound like, it doesn't sound like become a deeply angry person. It sounds like you work so hard in these areas... That doesn't God owe you a little slack, right? It doesn't sound like let's start on a slippery slope to walking away from Jesus. It sounds like God will forgive you. It's okay. God's full of mercy. God will forgive you. Tim Keller, uh, working from the Puritan Thomas Brooks, talks about two main schemes of the devil. Uh. We're called, it says, to resist the schemes of the devil. 2 Corinthians 2.11, Paul says in passing, no advantage can be taken of us by Satan. He says, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Are you ignorant of his schemes? Two primary schemes that Dr. Keller draws out from the Puritan Thomas Brooks. Temptation an accusation. The two primary ways that the evil one is trying to knock you off balance, to disrupt your standing, to attack you at the place of your identity by temptation on the one hand saying uh, inflating your sense of yourself diminishing your sense of God's holiness an accusation giving you too low an opinion of yourself, perhaps too high an opinion of your own sin, and blinding you to God's grace. It's, they're both at work in the Garden of Eden when, God, or when Satan comes to Eve and says, why can't you have that fruit? In other words, saying, God, God is withholding something really good from you, and you ought to have that. You deserve to have that fruit, Eve. Eve. And then also telling her, God knows that when you eat it, you'll become like God. Which, of course, the lie in that is that Eve already is like God. She's made in His image with knowledge and righteousness and holiness. She's already like God. She already knows good and evil. Do you hear the accusation in it? Do you hear the accusation... To, to, to whittle away at Eve's standing. That's what Satan does every time. We might say he runs an option offense. It might be a lot of misdirection, but he's going to run the ball up the gut just about every time. It's going to be a lot of flash and a lot of bang sometimes, but it's all misdirection. It's all trying to get you to not see what he's doing. One of the things that's important in this call to stand firm is to realize that the primary skirmishes are happening all around you every moment. Every moment of every day is a battlefield. Right? Paul says to stand firm so that you can withstand in the evil day. In other words, you're not in the crosshairs just yet, but don't wait until you are the only way to stand firm, the only way to get the Word of God, the, the love of Christ to dwell in you richly is to take those things that are true of you, to take the peace that you have with God, to take the righteousness that's yours by faith and ingest it. right? To, to digest it, to, to take it in, to, to make use of it, to, uh, to, to, to take energy from it. That's what this armor language is. It's just like Paul did in chapter 3 of Ephesians when he, told, or when he prayed for the Ephesians to, uh, to, to, to know the love of God. Well, they already know the love of God. Everything in the second half of the book of Ephesians is essentially Paul saying, be who you are, not become something you aren't. You see, the armor is simply Take the salvation that's yours and make it your helmet. Take the righteousness that you have already in Christ and make it your breastplate. Right? Take the word of God, take the spirit and make it your sword. Take the faith by which you're saved and make it your shield. He's not trying to tell you to get something you don't have, but he is trying to tell you don't wait until the battle's raging to grab your armor. Don't wait until that day. It's too late by then. You might know this, that when the attack came at Pearl Harbor, 90% of the planes were parked wingtip to wingtip. Easy picking. Because nobody can withstand a surprise attack. Are you preparing yourself now? My brother-in-law gave me a uh, really sharp, really good chef knife knife. Christmas last year. Um, he knows I love to cook, and um, it's a really good knife. It um, has a wooden handle on it. That's, it's, it's not a lacquered wood or anything like that. So, here's the problem is if you use that knife, when you clean it, you can't let it stay wet because the water will get inside that wooden handle. If you've had wooden uh, shovels or rakes, you've had the same problem. If the water gets inside, it, it's going to crack and it's going to fall apart and it's going to be useless. Here's what you have to do you have to take, I use Danish oil. You can use linseed oil or some other kind of oil. I'm not going to tell you what to do. But you take some kind of oil, and you put a few drops on that handle and you wipe it off. Every time you clean it, you wipe it off, you let it dry, you put a few more drops on, you wipe it off, you let it dry, and you put it away. And then you use the knife again tomorrow, and you put a few drops on, you wipe it off, you put a few more drops, you let it dry off, and you put it away. And then you do that tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day. And here's what happens. is over time that, that Danish oil seals that wood so that when you drop water on it, it doesn't sink in. You see, over time, and there's no shortcut for this, you apply that oil again and again and again and again so that it becomes insulated against the the penetration of the water. God has given you means of grace by which you are to daily apply the gospel apply it through his word, through prayer, through the sacraments, through fellowship with God's people again and again and again. And you have to do that again and again and again until the truth of the gospel gets inside you. So much so that instinctively... When temptation comes, when that whisper, when the skirmish comes, when the evil day comes, where Sinclair Ferguson says is the day in which you are triangulated by temptation, desire, and opportunity. When all three of those converge on you, right? When you're tempted to do something that you know is against God's Word, and when you have the ability to do it, and when you really want to, it's too late to start training, The only thing that will keep you from falling in that moment is to have your heart insulated by the continual application of the gospel to it. There's no shortcut for that again and again and again. Stand your ground. Now lastly and quickly, grab your gear. I just want to look at these different pieces of armor and very briefly, look, every time growing up that I heard someone talk about the armor of God, it was a spiritualized locker room speech, and I'm not going to do that this morning. I, I, so I, I'm going to err on the side of not pressing the metaphor too much, because I don't want to sort of pop the water balloon of the metaphor. That's a metaphor about a metaphor. <clears throat> what does it mean to put on this armor? Again, it's, it, it's, it's that continual application. the The, the taking of the the objective truth of the gospel and putting it on, getting, getting it out of the box, so to speak. Sort of, you know, if you've been to someone's house who has a bunch of toys in a famous collection or something like that, why don't you ever take the toys out of the box? Right? That's what Paul wants you to do. He wants, to take, he wants you to take the gospel out of the box and actually start to use it. Seven things he lists, if you count the final one, which is not really a tool, but we're going to count it. The belt of truth. The breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, and lastly, prayer in the Spirit. I am, without apology, uh, humbly stealing Tim Keller's sort of categories for this. Well, here's, here's what Dr. Keller does that I think is absolutely right. is The main tool that really everything hangs off of is this belt of truth. It's it's uh it's the belt is really not a great image what it really is more like his under armor um sort of like a uh almost like a uh like a what's the word under armor I'm not going to try to find a better word for it under armor that everything is attached to it's the thing that holds everything else together Right? And Then there's the breastplate and the shoes. These are all things that have to do primarily with your defense, right? Things having to do with how you are going to protect yourself. Look, the breastplate protects you at the most vulnerable place, right? You 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 can't take a sword blow to the chest. Uh, The shoes that enable you to just do basic mechanics. What's going to get you up? What's going to get you out in the morning and ready to actually engage in this battle so that you're not just coasting, so that you're not just giving up, so that you're not sinking into despair and into the mud of of giving it all up. In other words, can you move? Can you get up and go where you need to go? You notice that what gives you that is this gospel of peace. right? In other words, get up, get into the battle, because God has made peace. The helmet of salvation is this assurance of God's love. That, that when the devil comes to knock you off balance, to say you're not a child of God, you could say, wait, no, 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 my helmet, my helmet says I am. Right, My helmet says that Jesus bled and died for me. All of these elements have to do with how we, how we protect that identity as believers, as those who have been set apart by God. But now the last two, the sword of the Spirit and, and prayer in the Spirit, what these have to do with is how you continually keep that armor on, right? Again and again and again and again, constantly going to the Word, constantly praying, working the new self out. Working the new identity into you. And there's one last thing. You see, this, this warfare motif, you, you, you may know this. This passage, Paul is actually appropriating a chapter out of the Old Testament. He's actually, he's actually taking Isaiah 59 and making it New Testament. In Isaiah 59, I'm going to read you. It's verse 17, I'll read you it 14 to 17. It's a picture of God. Now, the, the image of God as a warrior is all over the Old Testament, right? That God cares about justice. He cares about the, the, the needs of the oppressed. He cares about evil in the world. And His arm is not short, right? You might remember the, the, the horse and the rider being thrown into the sea, the song from Exodus 15 after the Red Sea crossing, That motif is drawn all throughout the Bible of God being a divine warrior. Listen to this. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares. Then it says this about God. The Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. Verse 17 of Isaiah 59. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation upon his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself as in zeal as a cloak. You see, that's, that's where the image comes from. is God is the divine warrior. And the, and the armor that you're given is the armor that God himself puts on. And that was the anticipation in the first century of when is god going to come it's it's in some ways what we still are looking for is when is god going to come and bring justice on the earth but then when jesus came friends when jesus came he started behaving in ways that the divine warrior was not expected to Right, the climax of history comes. Jesus, as the Son of Man, he calls himself, which is an image from the book of Daniel meant to describe this divine warrior who's going to bring God's judgment and God's justice. Jesus comes and calls himself the Son of Man, but says, the Son of Man came to serve. The Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. Right, when the climax of the story comes, Where in John's Gospel, Jesus says, now is the time that the Son of Man is going to be glorified. Now is the time that the leader of the world, the devil, is going to be cast out. And I'm going to be lifted up. He's not lifted up on a throne, he's lifted up on a cross. Right? How does Jesus win his victory? By dying. The cross is the absolute moment of divine victory that comes through absolute defeat. That's the difference about the power Christians have is we follow in the footsteps of one who wins by losing. We follow in the footsteps of one whose way of victory is not by force but by service. The cross is the ultimate picture of this. Jesus wins by losing. Jesus is exalted by becoming a servant. You see, Jesus' kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, but it's also an upside-down kingdom. It's a kingdom where the way to victory is submission and service. And what we want to do as Christians is we want to do the Lord's work in the Lord's way. So we follow in the footsteps of our Master who laid aside His rights and His privileges so that you and I could have our feet washed and our souls washed by Him. Did you notice one thing's missing in that Isaiah 59 verse? As Paul renders it, the breastplate of righteousness is there, the helmet of salvation is there, but there are no garments of vengeance. There's no garments of vengeance. Do you know why? Because the vengeance came on Jesus. Right? Jesus was wrapped, was enclothed, we might say, in the wrath of God so that you could be clothed in his righteousness. And if nothing else, this book of Ephesians is about what it looks like to live out that new identity as one who has been brought home by Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would enable us to follow in your footsteps, to put on the armor to withstand the devil, to imitate Christ by giving up our rights and our privileges, for the sake of the gospel. Would you make that so? I pray for my friends that you would enable them to follow where you lead, to not coast, but to be battle ready, to stand firm, to know their enemy, and to put on the whole armor of God. Would you make it so? We pray in Christ's name. Amen.